Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Greetings, everyone. Hello to the listeners in South Africa, the listeners in Nigeria, in Hong Kong, in Japan, in Canada, in the United States of America. Welcome to everyone. Um, the podcast is, is getting quite international now. It's quite a few countries that it's um, been listened to in. And actually, in fact, it has been listened to in 72 countries uh, with 45,000 listens so far in about six months. So it's, it's all right. But anyways, today I am going to talk to you about Richard Little. And I want to introduce him because this is a really good podcast and we also had a really nice chat afterwards. So met him on Instagram, met on Instagram. What What is the technology I like these days? You meet people on the internet. I did. And just to give you an idea of his portfolio, so you know kind of who we're talking about here and what he's kind of done. So he teaches people how to fly fast jets. So he's had a very long career in the RAF as a pilot. He has seven HMOs ranging from five beds to 10 beds to 14 beds. And often these these have been developed from derelict commercial buildings. So he's done commercial conversions. He also has 21 buy-to-lets in his portfolio, including a block of nine, which he bought for just over 100k, spent 100k on them and got it revaled at 350k. They had knotweed, so of course everyone ran for the hills and he understood what you can do with knotweed. Uh, so that worked out pretty awesome. He's, he's flipped quite a few properties throughout this time and he has three service accommodation units and is aiming to get 10 at the end of this year. So really, really big portfolio. This hasn't been done in a year or anything. It's been done over quite a few years, but there's a lot of experience and a lot of wisdom that Rich shares with us. So without further ado, here is the podcast. Uh, hold on a second. We're running a competition. This is a pretty awesome competition. Richard is inviting eight people up to Yorkshire. To Yorkshire. Right. We'll have some tea in Yorkshire to look at his properties uh, and to have a two hour mastermind session with him, um, with eight of us around a table. And it will probably be a square table. It won't be a round table like the Knights. Um, so if you want to win this, uh, all you have to do is leave a review for Tech Talks on iTunes and on the Facebook page. Uh, Facebook page, you go to uh, like the Facebook page. On the left, it says feedback or reviews. Click on it and write a review. So do it on both platforms. Uh, also, follow us on Instagram. Richard is rich.liddle, L-I-D-D-L. I'm tedge.talks. Subscribe to the mailing list, which is at www.tedge-talks.com slash property. Once you've done all that, drop me a message. I'll enter you in the competition. Even better, you can win... Also, one of the eight people will win a free tandem skydive. Now, if you're crazy enough to do that, you can do that. I'm not going to do that. Or you can win a um, uh, like a flight simulator in a proper like RAF flight simulator thing. So if you want to get out of your comfort zone, literally jump out of it. I think these, these skydives cost, what, like £150, £200? Totally free, strapped to Richard. So, you know, on your way down, ah, you can also talk about property. You know, oh, uh, yeah, how much was the conversion on that HMR? Yeah, you know, it'll be really good fun, right? So please enter the competition, like I said. I'll also put details of it on the show notes. And let's let's get eight of you down for this mastermind to speak to builders, to look at his properties, 
to look at the refurbs that's going on at the moment and and i'll be there too maybe with some free t-shirts so without without further ado this is the last time i promise here is richard richard welcome to the tech talks podcast fantastic thanks for having me no it's no problem i think we're, we've kind of been connected on instagram for a while and you sent me a message and i kind of said well you know what like what's your story what are you working on not expecting you know anything crazy and then when i read the message i was like what <laughs> um, like the numbers i mean i read it just now before i started recording just to kind of rejig my memory and i'm still trying to like just work it out like there's there's so much and obviously so much you're still doing in terms of like your kind of job so before we get into kind of property and what you're doing in property what were you doing before property well it's not really what was I doing beforehand I guess it's um ever since leaving university um I mean what are we now 20 or oh, 20 years ago I guess now I I've been in the military so I joined the the military 20 years ago as a, as a pilot i was a helicopter pilot for 11 years and then a fast jet pilot which i still doing do now and i'm now training and it was really um so really i've always run property alongside of a full-time career um and it was something that i i was always interested in when i actually started my property it was always in order to step out of my main uh, employment uh, of being a pilot in the military but the, the bottom line was i still enjoyed it the, the flying aspect and the, the the military lifestyle so it was never really before property it was always just alongside and i've always juggled the two of them um for for well for about 15 years i guess i've been in property uh, in in one guise or the other uh, more professionally in the past few years but it has always been that juggling act you would say between a, a military deployed lifestyle of of being a pilot and the property investing so it, it has been a juggling act, let's say that, but I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And what made you want to have property alongside your career? It was more really in about kind of the 2000, early 2000 mark, well, 2003 to be exact, April 2003, I was involved in the uh, the invasion of Iraq, which was um, known as Op Herrick, so Operation Herrick. Um, sorry, it wasn't, it was Optelic. I'm getting the two mixed up. So Operation Telic, which was the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And really, I spent a long time then for the next few years deployed into Iraq. And as you can imagine, it was a, a hectic time. It was a busy time. I was flying what are called commando helicopters. So we were moving troops to the front line um, from Basra and what's called the Al Four Peninsula. And really, I, I saw myself doing this and I was effectively doing three to four months in the country. And I was doing about four weeks back at home before deploying again. And I just saw this cycle continuing and I thought, I can't, I can't continue with this. So I'm not going to get to a point where I'm, I'm kind of getting my military pension. So I took a took a step back and I thought, right, I need to find another, another avenue. Um, I can't spend my life deployed um, in this kind of guy. So really, I stepped into property, standard little buy to lets. There was a chap I worked with who did it very professionally and still in, in the, the, the property market now. Um, and really, so it was at that point I thought, right, once Iraq calms down, I'll have built up a little pension pot. I can step outside and then because the civilian uh, flying jobs at that point weren't paying it was all about, you know, replacing that income, etc. So it really started with that that classic, I need to step out of my my current job into something else to free up the time to give me my freedom back. And really what happened was by the time I built the property up in order to do that, we'd stopped the deployments in Iraq. And actually, I then reinvigorated my love for flying in the military. So at that point, I thought, actually, I don't now want to leave. 
I'm going to stick with it, stay with the military, and I've had subsequently a fantastic career. But by that point, the property portfolio was built, and I thought, you know what, why not just continue that as well? So it was set up really with that that classic financial freedom, leaving your current employment, et cetera, et cetera, which, which a lot of people seem to start property with the same with that same goal shall we say yeah and then tell everyone listening what your portfolio looks like right now so we're in april 2019 what, what does it look like cool april now um so we're looking extensive buy to let properties um and hmos all owned um so all my portfolio is 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 an owned portfolio should we say so um it was it's juggling between um, buy to let, you're going to ask me the sizes now. I'm going to have to sit, I always have to sit and think about this. Um, so uh, buy to let, HMOs and commercial conversions are really what I'm doing. I've now got a, a fantastic mentor into, for, for really the larger commercial conversion side of life. Um, but numbers wise, I've um, got seven HMOs um, and basically they're ranging from five beds, um, some 10 beds and a 14 bedroom HMO. Uh, we've got 20, now 21 buy-to-lets. I've recently just sold one of them, um, including a block of nine uh, nine apartments, which I uh, completely redid from. Uh, that was a complete refurbishment. There's quite a story behind that one, and that one's touching on kind of the, the Japanese knotweed and properties that people shouldn't buy but then could buy, just risk mitigation. I'm all about risk mitigation, um, which is a fantastic thing. And really, um, then developments is something I've got into uh, in the past couple of years. And the, as I'm mentored now by a chap, Mark Stokes, who I think you've 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 previously seen, my my personal mentor. We're looking to do some bigger stuff. And I'm bidding currently on a property in the city centre of York uh, for a conversion into to 14 very high end apartments. On the back of that, I uh, really am touching on uh, serviced accommodation at the moment as well. And that's come really about. Uh, I'd like to. I've liked the concept of service accommodation. I'm not into the management side. I feel a lot of people jump into service accommodation, and really you're just replacing one management job. Because a lot of people are quite well paid, say managers, senior managers, whatever their employment may be. They're replacing one management job with just a second management job of SA. So I thought I'm going to do a little bit of an experiment with um, somebody I met. Um, recently while networking to take on a few essays on a hundred percent hands-off basis and actually just to see if a hundred percent hands-off essay portfolio works and the rois are equivalent really to, to some of the developments i'm doing so it was just a, another um string to the bow shall we say i'm not jumping into the essay per se on a large scale i'd like I've got three at the moment. I'd quite like ten by the end of the year is what I'm what I'm aiming for, but on a hundred percent hands off basis. Wow. Okay. So there's there's a lot we can kind of delve into, but before we do, so you live in York and you invest in York, uh, North Yorkshire, really. Um, okay. So, so from Hull, York, uh, and then south of York as well. There's towns there, Selby, which which I'll touch on. I've also got buy to let spread across a little bit of a scattering across the country because again every time i would move with the military i'd kind of look into that region um, and see so i i, I did have a large i had to, i did have at 1.5 hmos in glasgow which i then sold when i moved away from there so that's part of the portfolio and subsequently being sold because i was flying on the uh, on the east on the west coast of scotland there the search and rescue helicopter from prestwick so at that point i delved into the glasgow property market i've also got some in edinburgh um somerset in a place called yeovil and somerset uh, and the rest now really are in the north yorkshire region I've, I've bought and sold numerous over the years the portfolio i mentioned now is what i'm currently hold but i've certainly 
should we say, bought and sold a lot as well. And with that as well, I'll, I do a little bit of the, I do sourcing as well, or packaging as people now like to refer it, of deals in the, the certainly the Hull area and the North Yorkshire, because I, because I see so many and I've operated there for so long and we've got, I've got a number of business te- uh, building teams there as well. So I do package quite a lot as well, but that's very much another sideline. So I would say um, a master of none, I'd like to say, I'd like, you know, you should never really, you're a master of none, but you know, I cover myself thinly. I'd like to say I've, I've got a lot of knowledge about a lot of things, but not necessarily a master in each one, which isn't always the best um, way to do things. You know, and there's there's arguments for both, but I quite like having all of the strings to a bow and and, and the ability to delve deeper into one should the uh, should the conditions exist. I, let's say I've got a little, a little bit of uh, disposable income on my hands. I may decide to do a quick buy to let or a quick flip of, as a cash purchase. If I don't have that available, I may source on, package on that deal, etc. So it allows, because I've got the knowledge of each of the strands, it allows me to to possibly delve a little deeper into each one. Absolutely. And so, mm. you know, quite a sizable portfolio and, and mm. quite a few ongoing flips at the same time. Now, what something that's really important, and again, before we delve into a few of those properties, um, like, so how much roughly, how much passive income does this bring in like a month or a year? And then how passive is that passive income? So you've, you've probably hit on a key there as well. And the passive is something that I'm, I'm really keen on. So if I took my portfolio aside, so the, the buy to let and the HMOs, my passive at the moment is around about 10 to 11,000 net income. Now that is, um, that is everything that is management. So they're all managed and managing agents, etc. So that is, I'm not going to say 100% passive because I do still have to manage the bills, etc. I, you know, I'll check the bank accounts. I'll do my own. I do my own bookkeeping, etc. So, but 90% of my is passive, shall we say? There is a small amount of administrative work. The packaging aspect, when I'm sourcing deals on and move them on, that's a little less passive. Okay, so I do remain hands-on there, and I'll, I'll work the package deal as it says, you know. So with the with the solicitors, with the building teams, etc. Um, that might bring in a, an income of around, I would say, annually. So last year we did 40, 42 properties packaged on with a with a general source fee of around three to five thousand. Now that's split fifty fifty with my business partner in the packaging arm. Um, so yeah, that's quite a sizable income as well. However, non passive. My portfolio, I would go as far to say as I like to run it 100% passively, but there is that small admin task here and there. And that's why, as I say, I'm running the small kind of X, I called an experiment with the SA aspect, just to see if it can be done 100% passively. A lot of people do one or two hundred percent passively um, using management agents, but I'm very much delving with Mr. Chris Taylor, who I know you've, um, you've interviewed as well. So Chris is really, taking these on i'm financing the initial front end of it then it's going 100 passive with him and really it's just to see if the rois do stack up to to the level i need them to um yeah so overall you know passively as i say around eleven thousand per month um that's with some good contracts we've got some good hmo contracts in there um but yeah, it's a sizable portfolio. We've got, uh, you know, they're all mortgaged, they're all owned, etc. The the debt on it is relatively low, uh, but yeah, eleven thousand's not. Uh, it could possibly be higher, certainly with some of the HMOs in there. But um, 
Mm. We're working on that. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's kind of a, a nice amount. I know a lot of people when I say to them, you know, what is what is the figure you're going for? It, it's around ten. Everyone sort of says around yeah. ten, which is which is fair enough. But let's let's kind of go deeper into your portfolio. So when you first messaged me and you mentioned it just there, there's mm. a property you bought which had not weed in and was a kind of property that you shouldn't buy but you could buy. Tell us more about that and the kind of valuations on that as well. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So I mean that 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 was really my first delve into not um not kind of a commercial conversion but more into the larger less shall we say vanilla hmo type avenue of your five to except so i'd done your buy to let i'd done hmos i was happy with the strategy happy with how it worked this was a derelict property pretty much a derelict property um it was uh, the chap had died hadn't gone to um or it died slash been repossessed shall we say so it was being sold by uh, by the bank um there was a lot of interest in this property. Uh, open source information, everybody knew he paid £350,000 for that property. Um, so, sorry, I got that wrong. He paid, I think, 200000 No, it was three fifty. He paid three fifty for the property. That was open source, land registry. That's what it was on. So it was on a guide at one hundred. So obviously that created a huge amount of interest. Um, and without exaggeration, there were almost coaches of people going to the three open viewings. Now, very quickly, it became apparent that this property was converted into seven one-bedroom flats, all in a in a very distressed condition. So it was a full refurbishment of all all units in there. It had car parking. It had land at the rear. However, on inspection of the land at the rear, um, Japanese knotweed was, was was found, and that was wasn't found initially by the agent. That was found by somebody on the viewing who then highlighted it. The agent then had it. Uh, correctly assessed and lo and behold that was not weed within a uh, within the boundary of the property and within about four meters of the property so those people who've delved into not weed know 10 meters is kind of the the golden rule if it's within 10 meters the property is almost unmortgageable so what that did is that scared a lot of people away i looked into it i then did a lot of research into not weed itself um, and the crux of it was it's a relatively easy thing to treat however um it meant you've almost got to buy it in cash because the, the properties, um, you, you can't really get finance on it. Some of the bridges now can, but I'm talking five years ago where bridge companies, mortgages, they wouldn't touch anything if you mentioned the word knotweed. So it came down to, to two of us. We ended up um, in a little bit of a bidding war on this, and I paid just over 100000 in the end for the property, 112 off the top of my head, I seem to remember. So 112000 we paid for the property. The refurbishment cost me then 100000 um, pounds on it and then it was revalued immediately so when I when I say that front end what happened is I had to pay for it cash so we so I uh, used a, a local investor so some, some very good friends actually lent me money for that who invested with me at a, at a return I paid cash we had the not we treated the very next day and that was signed off that it had been treated the refurbishment took around three weeks and then at that point it was happily remortgaged by Shawbrook Bank with a valuation of 350,000 again. We could have got a little bit more, but all I wanted back out was my initial investment. I didn't want any more money out of the property. And I felt that was the key to that that whole deal was really finding something that scared away out of probably around 50 to 60 viewers, there was two of us left. And that was down to a lack of education about how to go around dealing with the knotweed. They heard knotweed, they ran a mile. Now, I think I think knotweed now has become a, almost a the banks and a lot of the bridges, it's a very well trodden path, shall we say. There's a lot of ways to do it. But I still look 
in a way for properties with something that will scare away others. Um, and I like that in a property that, and that creates deals that possibly aren't your vanilla, I'm just going to offer 20% below the asking price type deal. So um, yeah, it was interesting. I still hold them now. They still bring me in, you know, they uh, produce, uh, what are they producing? They're, they're all rented around, they're, you know, the low rent one, uh, one bed flats, 450, 400 to 450 a month, um, all working tenants. I work a lot with universal credit, another avenue I could speak uh, a lot about and something I've become a little bit of an expert in working with universal credit. And again, because a lot of people are running away from universal credit at the moment because it's so bad to handle and administer. I kind of delved into that and I've found ways of maximizing the amount you can get out of the, the classic LHA strategy that people ran a few years ago, which is now universal credit. But as I say, landlords are flooding away from anything to do with universal credit. The homelessness problem in the UK is rising as a result. So actually, there's a huge market there now if it's administered correctly. So that's, a, as I say, another little avenue that I'm, I'm currently running down. Wow. And you know what? Let's, let's talk about that because I've got a okay. property in, in Wales and I'm kind yeah. of... You know, it, when I spoke to letting agents and from kind of looking at the area as well, it's it's fifty percent of tenants there are kind of working professionals. Fifty percent are DHSS, universal mm. credit, whatever the kind of term is. Yeah. So, t- tell me more about that kind of strategy, and and, it, and does it only apply to your area, or does it apply uh, everywhere? Or? It applies everywhere. So, I mean, universal. The, the quick background: universal LHA is what it always used to be termed, the local housing authority, and each council then administered their rate for the property so there would be different rates you could look it up on the on the um on their council website and it would be quite simply broken down as single male you know single female female with child family etc etc and there was a different rate and what they were entitled to so let's say a single male would be entitled to a room so an hmo room where a, a single mother with a child may be entitled to a one bedroom flat and it was always a good um, certainly something that i looked at years ago and always a good when you're looking at the lower end properties and looking for those gold mine areas it's always wise just to look at the lha rate on the internet for that region and all that does is that gives you the base level that's the minimum i will get for my property and that's one of these the things the criteria that i used to look at when i was assessing deals so i'd look at this property and it gives you a base level if all else fails i'll give it to the council and that's the rate i will give and actually in some areas the LHA rate is more than the going rate for um, a, a, for a standard tenancy. Let's give you a quick example. Um, in Hull, as I say, so I've got a lot of properties in Hull, lower end properties. You buy a lower end uh, flat or terrace property. You can still buy a little terrace two bed property at um, for around forty five to fifty thousand. Uh, the rental rate for that on the the open market can range from between three hundred and fifty pounds. To possibly 400, 425. Yet the LHA rate is 433, which is 100 pounds per week. So actually, technically, you could just give that straight to the council or liaise with the council, put an LHA tenant in there, and you're making a little bit more money. Downside, you never know what you're going to get. However, we can't tar everybody with the same brush just because they're not working. Now, what happened is, uh, went to Universal Credit, the government brought in this Universal Credit system, and it's been um, littered with flaws ever since it came in. Um, I was 
in at its infancy. So the councils implemented it at different rates. So some councils now are still doing LHA rates. And if that's the case, your money comes directly from the council. Um, universal credit came in. Um, um, universal credit came in really to try and make it more of a, a, a government-led uh, policy, but administered by the local councils. Where this went wrong is it was designed to get people back into work um, and the tenants would have to pay the landlords themselves. Obviously, a lot of tenants did pay the landlords, but of course, if you've got somebody who doesn't want to work, has lived in a benefit state for all of their lives, lo and behold, they will never pay the landlord. And this is where you see has fallen down. So the ways around that, quite simply, uh, you can categorize them. Okay, so let's, for instance, I deal a lot with people uh, ex-homelessness um, that may have an ex-alcohol problem or a drug problem. Again, heavy management, but with a simple form called a UC47, which again baffles me how a very small bit of information and education regarding universal credit, a lot of landlords seem to miss. A UC47 is a form that is open source, online, go onto the government website, fill it in, justify that you haven't, that you are in arrears, send it off to Universal Credit, and then you will get your rent payment directly from there. Okay, little bit of knowledge there for you. So don't forget that, you know, and that's, you've got to justify it, and there's ways to do that. There's categories and banding for that. I now do that with every single one of my tenants, irrelevant of their background simply because it makes it far, far easier for that money to come from universal credit than me having to chase via text message, via telephone call, however people chase their tenants every single month. Because a lot of these individuals don't have bank accounts. They don't, or they've only got a bank account for their universal credit. So they don't have internet banking. They don't, you know, they, we're talking, you've got to look at a lot of the demographics of, of individuals, um, we're dealing with, okay? But the bottom line is they all need accommodation. They all need somewhere to live. And actually, because a lot of people are running away from it, it's meant that lower end is very uncatered for. Um, I could give a quick example of a property in question that I'm, I'm running at the moment and the returns that are possible. So I've got a 10 bedroom HMO. Um, well, it's actually, it's, uh, it's actually a seven bed HMO with three self-contained flats on the ground floor. Uh, that's in Selby, uh, which is south of York. It's still a York postcode. Now, that is 100% universal credit in that building. Where this, where, this, um, where this is a win, shall we say, is I deal with the council directly and universal credit. Um, initially, when I said, when you asked how passive my portfolio was, it took a little bit of work for this negotiation. But now this is 100%. Actually, I'll not go as far as saying 100 because I don't want to jinx it. But we'll say 90% passive or 95% passive. What happens is... Um, that individual, single man entitled to a room, comes out of wherever he is. I just have to provide a room with facilities that include a shared bathroom, no furniture, no internet, nothing, bare room, carpet, but, you know, relatively a clean room and a kitchen sink so he can bring his own kitchen unit. So actually my outlay for that room is far, far less than, say, the high-end rooms that people are now, um, you know, doing by the droves. But actually, the lower end is uncatered for. So there we are. I've got seven rooms in this property. I'm not providing internet. It's only got electric in the property. It's heated. The council will provide the furniture, etc. Uh, and that property brings in um, this. Uh, so that property brings in just shy of forty-two thousand pounds per year. However, the bill aspect of that, we pay no management because it's done directly through the housing officer in the council. 
we pay no internet, we pay no council tax. So you can see immediately, we've already got um, a, a, a sort of a, a cleverer model, shall we say there. And also these individuals can't usually pay deposits. So we get a, what's called a 500 pounds paper bond by the council. So the council will write um, exactly that, it's a paper bond. You don't physically get the money, but if there is an issue, you just write an email to the council and they will deduct it from that bond. And an example of that, I had an individual who lost his front door key uh, recently, which meant we had to change the, the, the communal front door and issue all new keys, which came to around just over £100. I sent that bill to the council. It was paid from that individual's paper bond. So I'd say it's quite a complex subject, but it's actually a relatively straightforward. You do end up with possibly every time they move out, you've got to do a refurbishment of that unit. But because there's nothing in the unit, it's a relatively straightforward refurbishment. And that, again, comes out of their paper bond. Yeah, and that's a, a model that I'm starting to roll out a little bit more just on the back of a, a completely separate business with a charity arm to it, which I'm, I'm starting at the moment. And that's why I delved heavily into the universal credit market because of this. Um, which we can talk about talk yeah. about now if you wish, yeah. <laughs> no, so before we get into that charity, which does sound very interesting, if, so obviously you've kind of gone out of your way, you've set this up, you've understood it, you've spoken to your council, how would, you know, anyone listening who, you know, is in, let's say, a different council to you, different part of the UK, yeah. got a property and they're thinking, you know what, I want to do universal credit, I want to have this, what sounds like a kind of, almost like a self-managing, self-repairing lease from the council in a way, yeah. how can they go about, you know, getting this or even at least opening a conversation to having something like this, especially because a lot of councils have, you know, websites are rubbish, there's not much detail on there, you, you know, you try and help people who need homes, but the council don't make it easy to do that at the start. So, so what's the plan? Yeah, and I agree, they don't, um, and, and they certainly didn't with me, but all councils will have a housing officer, and that's really the first port of call. Now, the housing officer now, all housing officers for local councils are supposed to, I'm not going to say it should have already gone on, but they are supposed to, there was a time period set, I'm not sure what it is, uh, where they will go on formal universal credit training. And the benefit for that is, uh, again, to contact universal credit is a helpline where you'll sit and listen to the Vivaldi's Four Seasons or some other um, classical music for three hours and still not speak to anybody. So the housing officers are all going on universal credit training. What that means is you can take their problems directly to them and they should be able to deal with it. So that's always the first port of call, the council housing officer. Certainly a lot of councils, as I say, are still on LHA rates. So if you've got an LHA tenant in there, speak to the LHA officer or which should be the housing officer. They should be one and the same person. One of the other things that, that comes out of these councils, again, is worth looking at, especially when you mention South Wales yourself there, is a lot of um, councils now are offering empty homes refurbishment funds. Okay, And if, if people haven't looked into that, it's worth looking into your council um, because these are being ruled out far, far um, more widely. It was originally brought in, it was a council down in Kent, the Kent region, I can't remember which borough or where, but they brought it in They said if a property was empty for six months, we will offer the landlord um, a £25,000 interest-free loan to get that property back up on and running. However, the property could be empty for six months. You could have bought it. You've owned it for two months, but it, you could prove it's been empty for six. Oh, you could... Um, 
and then apply for that loan. So South Wales, for instance, fantastic at the moment, and they're doing it uh, in their droves. You're allowed a maximum of £175,000 from the council. So what that means is you could have seven projects on the go at any one time, and your refurb fund has been given from the council. It's paid back interest-free over a given period of time. I think it's five years. But what that means, that's an initial pot of money at the front end for you to do the refurbishment. And again, a lot of the councils are, are, are jumping on this bandwagon and bringing in similar type deals in order to try and encourage people to work with the council. Their end game is you work with the council, they'll provide the funding to do the property, but you then let it to them, universal credit, et cetera. That's not what they're insisting, but that's what their, their end goal is when I've spoken to them. So what I would say is for people listening is, empty um, your housing officer, fantastic, okay? A lot of councils don't have empty homes officers anymore uh, because that was one of the positions that got, that got cut and a lot of councils when they were cutting uh, jobs and staff got rid of empty homes officers. But you'll find that the, um, the housing officer will generally know where these empty properties are. And that's a source an absolute source of potential deals for people uh, to possibly approach, direct a landlord, etc., to try and get deals if people are packaging and sourcing on as well. As a packager, look at how long that property has been empty and offer the investor who is buying that, okay, offer them, you will do the back-end work to work with the council in order to fund the refurbishment of that property. So all of a sudden, so I've just... Um, I, I recently, literally in the past week or so, have, uh, have sourced a property in South Wales, which we can, uh, we can talk about shortly. It's an area that I don't usually do, but an investor I've got who's from London wanted a property there. Um, another investor I met at a networking event had a property, um, offered it, I think it was 42000 but I've now done the work with the council. It's sim When I say work, it's simply a little bit of negotiation, a few application forms. And all of a sudden, they've fronted the £25,000. So my investor no longer has to find, you know, 67000 25000 plus his forty-two plus his associated cost. He simply has to purchase the property, do his cost, council will refund, and you can remortgage, okay, it's classic remortgage at the back end on the new valuation, and you don't have to pay that money back straight away. It's still paid back interest-free over the given period of time. They're a fantastic scheme and they're very, very underutilized. Yeah, no good, strong advice to And actually, I discovered mm. that one in Wales recently. And the problem was for me is that they have an upfront cost of a thousand or I think it's because beyond a thousand pounds. So it's interest free. Um, and I think it works better on bigger loans. So I was looking for a loan of five grand and it was a thousand pounds to apply. I just thought this is a total waste of time because... I'll, just, I'll find £5,000, I'll get on a credit card, whatever. But £1,000, that's a big interest when you, you know when you think about it. So I think bigger refurbs, like twenty five grand, mm. it, it will make a lot more sense in terms of where else could you get that money for that price. Yes. But anyone thinking of little things, probably not going to be useful unless you can negotiate that upfront cost yeah. off. And I, and I would tend to agree with that. But I would also say that that upfront cost, cost isn't, um, isn't universal. A lot of people... Councils don't do that. For instance, again, in the in the North Yorkshire region, they don't. It's simply a, a, a an application process. So that that thousand pounds I haven't come across, but that might be something they're rolling out now that it is starting to become. Should we say a few people are becoming aware of that that funding stream? 
Um, but, but certainly it's not a, a universal thousand pound across the board. Every council administers it slightly different. And actually, if you look into certainly the Kent one, uh, where it was originally rolled out, is, is an interesting read. It's a very, very interesting read about um, the statistics of how many empty homes they had at the start of the, the rollout, vice five years following it. And it is quite a, quite a phenomenal statistic. Hmm. Definitely need to look that up. But yeah, um, so... You know, a lot of I guess the two main things that people are looking for in property is money and deals. Now you hmm. have had both, so let's talk about deals. Now you've obviously found a lot of deals. Some were, you know, I'm sure just vanilla, and some like the the knotweed one were quite unique. Hmm. How do you generally go about sourcing your deals? A lot, a lot of it is, you know, the classic networking. You know, you can't really, you can't really knock the classic network. I mean, it works brilliantly. Like, I think um, certainly when I started, I think deal sources deal sourcing you know let's roll back um a number of years wasn't as common as it possibly is now you know and it's become kind of almost the buzzword of 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 property now everybody wants to be a deal sourcer and things like that and a lot of that works now i did a a deal packaging course or deal sourcing course i call it years ago uh, when it was run by chap mark Ierson out of progressive property and it was called dominate your ground now, it went through all of the, you know, and I was starting out really then when I turned my property more professional and it was talking about the guerrilla marketing, you know, leafleting, et cetera, et cetera, to try and find your deals or working with uh, other sources. Now, at that time, there were only one or two sources. And actually, my first few, I'll call them professional buy to let. So not just ones where I was going into a new region. I thought I wanted I want to really go heavy in here. And that was when I moved up to North Yorkshire. Um, I used the deal sourcer and it was the first one I the first one was was an okay deal shall we say but again by the time I'd paid the fees to the individual etc was I was becoming a little disheartened with the process of 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 paying for this this deal uh, and and really maybe that was my naivety I didn't look into the ROIs of of working with his individual so Sourcing, I think, has changed a lot. But what I did learn from that really is is the networking, is working with the building teams. When I first moved to North Yorkshire, I would I looked at a property and I would contact three or four uh, building teams and ask them to come and quote for a job that I was about to do. And on the back of that, really, we I I then started a network with said builders, and really that grew legs, shall we say. So I didn't own this property, but I'd all of, all of a sudden got four people to come around and do, do me quotes. I then really drilled into the quotes. I went to see them. I spoke to the builders. And in the end, what I did is I said, look, guys, that deal, um, that deal's fallen out of bed. We haven't taken that. However, that's the sort of thing I'm after. Have you got anything uh, that you're possibly working on now or that you know of? And I probably since then have taken six or seven deals directly from builders who've been approached by individuals on the street when they're working on a property, uh, they're doing an HMO conversion for whoever they may be. A, a landlord or an owner has walked down the street and said, oh, guys, I've, I've got my property. I'm looking to sell it, etc." That all of a sudden becomes a direct-to-vendor deal. Okay, So that was a fantastic opportunity. Networking, networking with builders, networking out of your comfort zone was fantastic. And that was a really good way for me finding deals. Um, but also the use of sources. Nowadays, I really would and. I wouldn't say I encourage it, but there's certainly some very reputable sources out there um, who you can work with. There's some good platforms out there that you can look at. And 
it's really about getting out on the ground, I think I would say, for, for a new investor. If you're new in a region, get out on the ground, tread the streets, look at the areas, really learn your area um, before you ever start delving into to sort of buying a property or engaging with a sourcer, shall we say. Okay. I mean, what role do you think kind of estate agents or like direct vendor play? So if you're, if you're not yeah. using a sourcer, because, you know, if you're investing in your local area, you probably, you know, time and money, depending, yeah. you probably don't want to use a sourcer. What role has that played for you or do you think it plays? Yeah, when you say about agents, you know, I have nothing against agents whatsoever. And, I, you know, I've, I've bought deals from agents and I, I, I think estate agent, again, relationships with estate agents are, are fantastic. Um, I generally have never sourced from an estate agent, if that makes sense. I've never taken it. I really kind of disagree with that, that policy when, when you see people negotiating deals with estate agents then subsequently sourcing them on. I really, that's me personally, I don't like that. Um, it's just something that doesn't sit quite rightly with me but certainly with agents yeah absolute fantastic source of information source of new deals and also just a font of knowledge go and spend some time doing the viewings you know again some of the smaller agents you'll end up with the same viewer who was who was doing the half dozen viewings that you may have booked in if it's the same agent for a saturday for instance so i'll you know, back in the day, I would have booked in five viewings with the same agent. So I knew it was going to be the same viewer. All of a sudden, you've just spent two hours with this guy. And, and you know, you'll, you, you can you can get a feel for who wants to sell. They're not going to say, is this a distressed seller? Very rarely will they come out and tell you, yes, he wants to sell it tomorrow. And he's open to very cheeky offers. That type of conversation comes after a long, long time. But um, certainly that working with the agents, that that building up a, a rapport, knowing that you're serious, okay? There's also a difference between booking half a dozen viewings on a Saturday and not being serious, okay? You know, some some serious and educated questions need to be need to be asked. So the, the agents themselves know that you're serious. And also bear in mind that the, um, the viewer uh, or the person doing the viewing could be, you know, a Saturday job. They they may not necessarily want to be there. So again, gauge who you're talking to. One of the other things, again, which is quite good for for you know little is little tip is a site called Viewer, um, which I'm not sure if you've you've heard of yourself. Um, yeah, so Viewer as well. I, you know, I registered with Viewer, um, and I did, only did it for a short period of time because I just didn't have the the time. But I do know some people who are taking their sourcing and their packaging more seriously will use Viewer. So they become the viewers for the likes of say Purple Bricks and other online agents. So all of a sudden you'll get a message saying, Richard, can you, um, can you uh, facilitate a viewing at X address on Saturday at 12 o'clock? We've got three people wishing to view. All of a sudden you become the person facilitating that viewing. Now chances are when you turn up, the person you're going to meet at the door isn't an agent, it's the vendor because you're doing the viewings on behalf of said agent, if that makes sense. So I've had chats, you know, all of a sudden you're then direct to vendor in a way. You've, you you are getting the information, you are um, chatting, you are building a rapport and you're finding out do they need to sell, why they need to sell, etc. before obviously you're doing your viewer bit and facilitating the viewings. However, you've just had half an hour with the vendor. That is is like a gold mine. Mm, wow excellent yeah. tip and then you mentioned something earlier about the questions you should ask to an agent on a viewing should be educated and show you're serious what what did you mean by that and have you got examples of what you ask mm, interesting yeah so generally the things i would ask you know or now you know when we're, we're looking at the um i generally now will look at the the larger things i'm as i'm looking at 
doing a larger conversions or properties that have subsequently been converted. So it's just little things, you know, about its actual use class, you know, if it's a commercial building or we just viewed one the other day, which was converted into a number of flats. Has it got planning permission? Now, quite often you can then gauge um, the response of, of how, now I knew it didn't have planning permission. So that was converted without planning permission. Now that took me 20 minutes before I viewed to look that up. And the reason I looked that up is I wanted to know, was it converted illegally? Was it past building control? What state are these flats going to be in? Um, so I asked the agent at that time, has it got planning permission? Now the response I got back was, yes, it has. It was converted in any throughout a day. I think it was 1995 or whatever it was. I knew that was incorrect. So almost in my head, I knew at that point, uh, I'll possibly not ask any more questions. More educated questions when I say, it's just, let's say we're doing an HMO conversion. It's what's the density of HMOs? Have you dealt with many properties down here? If they've got a letting zone, do you let many rooms in this region? You know, just very basic questions. But again, times I've been on viewings or multiple viewings, and you'll see somebody walk in the front door, walk around the five rooms, walk out, um, of the property and leave. That to me is, there's no rapport being built with the agent. There's no polite conversation. Rapport building that people go on about is effectively polite conversation. Uh, and that's all it is. It's about showing, so at least then in a week's time, who was memorable from that viewing? Oh, Richard had a chat with me. I know he's uh, he's new in the region, et cetera, whatever. It's, a, it's making that stamp in somebody's head that they remember you without being, uh, you know, without, trying to be over the top, should we say, the whole taking cakes into agents and things, which some some people try and tell. You know, that to me is creepy in a way. Maybe creepy is the wrong word, but you understand what I mean. It's, so it's about building a genuine level of rapport with with individuals. But that's network, but that's networking. Do you know, that is basic networking. And that's what I would for one of me, for for me, the in property investing, networking has brought me far, far more than um than possible hours spent researching on agent sites, on computers, right moves, et cetera, and all the sites. Networking, get out there, get yourself out there, um, and just choose where you go as well. Don't always just go to the property events, go to the business lunches. You know, So I did a business lunch in York, the, the York uh, Roundtable run business lunches. Go to the business lunches, because actually, again, on the flip side, when, when possibly you're no longer in your infancy in property, you may have a few properties under your belt and you're thinking, actually, I want to accelerate this process and looking for a little bit more money. You don't want to necessarily be in a in a property networking event because everybody's networking for the same end goal. Take yourself out of the property networking event, put yourself in a small business networking event where you've got more to talk. You could talk to individuals who are then you know, encapsulated by what you're saying, you're, it's, everything you say is new. And, and certainly some of the business events, that's where I've subsequently got some funding from, some JV funding. Certainly some some people have then, I've met architects, things like, well, not necessarily architects, they'd go to the property ones anyway. But if you understand what I mean, it's kind of taking yourself out of just the property. A lot of people, when you say network, they'll go to all the pins, all the PPNs, all of the property events. Go to a business lunch, go and, go and sit next to somebody who's running, you know, that, that individual maybe running a hotel in the local local town or he might run all of the a chain of small cafes but that small cafe chain's got 10 frank 10 cafes in the so for instance there's one in york and he's got 10 little cafes all independent cafes you know he is a a local font of knowledge and also you know a potential 
investor in my business if you it's just that that networking opening doors and again i met, met a chap very very recently um it wasn't a, it wasn't a, uh, i was going to do a bit of private flying from he's got a, a plane at a local airfield and actually that conversation so um should I delve into this now? This is a little, yeah, yeah. little story. Yeah. I was, so, was going to uh, say, tell us how you yeah. attract investors. So this will lead yeah. us nicely so, into so that. So this, so this is one. In a, this wasn't necessarily in, um, an investor, but it's it's kind of how the door opens up. And it, it, the, the question was asked to me over the table, and the, the first thing that sprang to mind was the, the classic Richard Branson quote. And I'll probably paraphrase this completely wrong, but it's where he said, you know, if an opportunity is presented to you, always say yes and figure out how to do it, how to how to do it later on. So this this chap, a lot mentions. Um, his name, but he, he bought an airfield many, many years ago, an ex-RAF airfield in North Yorkshire called Church Fenton. His plan for Church Fenton, um, and that's what happens. The, the Air Force own a lot of real estate. Obviously, I'm in the Air Force. So I see when this happens, a lot of real estate, and they sell it off at horrifically reduced rates. Okay, so when MOD land sales occur, they're far higher ticket items. You know, we're not talking year 50 to 100,000, but I think he paid only... I'm, I'm probably only just into the million possibly for Church Fenton, and we're talking we're talking an airfield, okay? So we're talking a lot of real estate. Now his intention for Church Fenton, he's a a businessman, um, a very very successful businessman, not a property developer, etc. But he wanted to buy the land. He's a pilot, so he wanted to keep the runway side, but actually develop uh, and sell off the remaining land to a to a housing developer. Now that was refused. Um, it was actually going to be a town extension, so it wasn't just planning permission. You know, we're talking a huge level of of properties, and it's a very small village it's next to. So it would actually become a a town extension, which is far far bigger. Now that was refused. So what uh, what he did, he's now turned that into uh, effectively a private airfield. So he's running private aviation. He'll go as far as Nice, and you can go and rent his private jet, fly to Nice. He'll, he does a lot into kind of Courchevel and places, etc. And he's opening up this this private aviation network to people who possibly would never have the funds for private aviation. So you can rent his private jet, for instance, to go to Nice for the weekend, hold 10 people, and it'll cost you just shy of £8,000. Now that would work out £800 per person, but all of a sudden it's private aviation. It's kind of a, he's trying to open it up to groups of people who all of a sudden it becomes more affordable, shall we say. Well, not say affordable, but that's what he's doing. Anyway, on the flip side of this, this this grew legs. So in this chat, and I was going to do a bit of flying for him. That's that's what I was there for. He's now building uh, two terminals and two associated hangars uh, and a lot of industrial space at at Church Fenton. One of them is going to be a film set. Um, there's then going to be a lot of offices uh, and all sorts going on. And in this conversation, he said, "Oh, you know, Richard, would you?" You know, you do a bit of building, you do a bit of developing. Is this something that would interest you, you know, going into building industrial units and industrial on an industrial scale? And I looked at the plans and it was a 3D model he had on his computer and it was unbelievable. And of course, my immediate answer was, yes, Chris, you know, I, I know somebody who could do this. We could definitely work together. We could look at. And this has just been passed as well. So he's got approval for it. And I walked out of that meeting. And I thought, I'm not interested the, you know the the flying aspect that he's the, the work that he's just offered me then it uh, paled into insignificance i was more thinking right building industrial units where do i start researching that or who do i know who could do that and you know that was it it started so not that i'm doing this yet but it was kind of that conversation all of a sudden turned into richard you may know somebody who could do this or could you assist us with this and i thought you know what that is 
again, networking outside of the box, shall we say. Um, you mentioned about where I get uh, investors. You know, it's it's a it's an interesting one. And again, I guess it's those circles you, you know, I've been in the military for the past 20 years. There is a huge source. Military, uh, the, the standard military mindset is a, an individual who kind of lives for their paycheck. They're very good at saving. They'll spend a lot of time deployed. They have a lot of disposable income. So actually, I work in an industry where individuals kind of have traditionally saved money. They'll go away for a six-month deployment and they'll come back with a lot of a lot of disposable income at their hands because obviously you don't spend anything. The first two times you'll deploy, you'll always come back and you'll buy yourself a new car. You know, the amount of times I've been away and you'll come back and there's a, a car park full of brand spanking cars because that's what people do. Once people turn kind of 25, they're deployed for three or four times, all of a sudden they'll come back and they may have 50,000 sat in the bank. And actually I've noticed that simply by networking within my colleagues has created quite a significant investment in my property business. And again, flying, you know, as I said, I've, I've, I've hung around pilots and, and, and flying enthusiasts now for, for that long. And when I fly at civvy centers or civilian centers, I should say, the, the general amount of, of capital people have is, is kind of a lot more. So I'm very privileged in that sense that I work in an industry that is full of people with, kind of a disposable income and also a risk appetite that if you sell something to them, invest in my company at X return, quite often they're, 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 they're champing at the bit to jump on board. They've got that kind of that appetite for it. Mm. Okay. <laughs> very, very interesting. Okay. And then, you know, what are you doing next in property? So we know what your portfolio is, what it's bringing in. And you kind of mentioned earlier a separate business. So maybe talk us through that. Yeah. So, you know, so I'm, I'm in my latter stages of, of my Air Force career. So I actually leave the Air Force um, middle of this year. Uh, well, October, should we say October this year? And really, I, I, I don't want to go into commercial aviation. So, you know, I've been a pilot for that long. And that's kind of where we've got a well-trodden path into commercial aviation. So where I'm, what I'm doing now, property wise, I'm currently bidding on a, a large development in uh, York, uh, which closes or closing bids the 10th of May. So we're, we're in a sort of final stages of, you know, planning for that. And that'll be between 12, I've gone for 12 to 14 um, high-end apartments, excavating out the basement of this property, beautiful, large office building. So that's the property aspect of that. And that really will take me, I'd like to look to begin that before I depart um, the service. And that's not me leaving the military thinking, I'm going, that's simply, I'm retiring. That is 22 years service, I will leave at that point. Um, rather than I'm leaving, you know, the, the classic get out of your work to go into property full time. It's simply I am retiring and I, uh, you know, I'm 41. I don't really have a, a choice in that matter about leaving the military um, as a pilot. Anyway, that's that's the time they leave them outside of that. What I've seen is when I when there's two avenues that I'm going into, really, we've started a few years back. I started a charity, uh, Homes Fit for Heroes, and really that was designed to aid the, the homeless ex-service person's problem. Homelessness, as I mentioned earlier on, the universal credit, et cetera, that's how I almost became a little closet expert on universal credit because I saw that the homeless problem within the UK was on the rise. And coupled with that, homeless ex-servicemen is a phenomenal statistic. So you'll get people leaving the military a lot. There is a big PTSD problem and the post-traumatic stress, you know, that that is a well-documented problem. 
coupled with that, people are, are, are losing relationships when they're deployed for a long time. We're out of Afghanistan now. So actually, um, Afghanistan was causing a lot of lot of problems because people were deployed for huge periods of time. I think now, actually, we're in a little bit of a respite period, um, should we say, with the British military. And hopefully, this problem may start to, to ease. But anyway, the, the homeless ex-military problem, phenomenal. So I started a charity, Homes Fit for Heroes, um, which was aimed at um, helping these people. So it was specifically targeting homeless ex-servicemen. Um, it, it does all right. It's still going now. It need, I, I, I just, there's two of us run it. We, we give as much time as we can, but I'll see we, we've got aspirations to grow it. But on the back of that, what we saw is actually a lot of these people are becoming homeless. They've still got great minds in them. They've got, um, they've got teamwork. They're, a lot of them have got skills. It's surprising how many like plumbers, plasterers, tradesmen we are seeing who, who but they, they are in this situation. So we're, we're, we're now starting um, to see it. Let's educate people with an entrepreneurial mind. Okay, so they may not be entrepreneurs, but they are team players. They are hard workers. They're grafters. Not everybody can be your entrepreneur, but these people are leaders. They can lead generally because that's what they learn within military training, but they may not be entrepreneurs. That's a completely different mindset and skill set. So um, through a company that we're just looking to start up now called Battlefields to Business, we're looking at um, really training individuals within the military to to harness what they've got, how they go about starting a business, how they would go about running a business. It's not about being taking that business and trying to be the next, um, you know, Victoria Plum, if you're a plumber, or next huge business. It's about building a sustainable small business for themselves. And with that, a lot of them may want to get into property, which we can discuss as well. But also with that, which these people can assist with the property developers in the room. So actually it's got a lot of different avenues and they can all merge together. The benefit of this is if the, we're obviously targeting servicemen with this, so people within the military, one of the three services, uh, or people who've subsequently left the military but are veterans. The benefit of it is we can we get funding from the military in order to train these individuals. Okay, so that's the that's the, the kind of infancy of it. So an individual may say, I want to go on a battlefield to business course. Actually, me as the owner, I can get funding from the Ministry of Defence to send that individual on that course. So for that person, there's nothing come out of his pocket or a very small contribution. So it, it helps us retrain and, and use get these individuals who may from all aspects, just join the military, but have aspirations to run a business in 10 years to I'm just leaving the military. I've no idea what I'm going to go and do. We could assist that person or the person who's left actually a little bit down on his luck now, but he's got a trade to his name. Actually, let's take him and let's train him or guide him and coach him into how he would go about working for himself. So Battlefield's the business. We've got huge aspirations for it. Um, it's just in its infancy now. But as I say, we, we've got a, a couple of good people on board. Another very experienced property developer um, was kind of myself and him with a brainchild. And we've got a, 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 an education company who have come on board now, uh, who run apprenticeships, uh, who run city and guilds training, et cetera, to come on board to assist because of the, the level of funding that we're looking to gain from the actual Ministry of Defence themselves. So exciting times. Very, very <laughs> exciting times. And it's good that, you know, you you can ha you have the time and freedom to commit to such a kind of noble cause. And I mean, do you think property has given you 
the freedom to be able to do this and not necessarily worry about sort of income and, and profit and things like that? Um, not at all, really. Um, I, I, it's it's something I guess because again I've I've always worked, shall we say? So I've always I've enjoyed my work. Um, I think there's different mindsets of people who possibly get into property in order to get out of work the classic replace my income get into property full-time you know and and that's that's a completely different mindset property has given me um it's given me the choice shall we say so it's given me that ability now to choose without having to jump i've loved my work so i'm not going to sit and say i've got in the property in order to get i did possibly at the very start of it but i've run a property company without the intention of replacing my income. I've just run it to grow it as far as I feel I could, and I've enjoyed it. And I think that was the crux of it. I enjoyed it. So it's given me the freedom now to to choose where I want to go. Um, I feel property itself, The I, I kind of don't want to grow my property business. I, it will still grow, but I feel property has so many different avenues to offer people. Um, I feel a lot of people now are jumping on almost the education arm of it. And that's something that we didn't want to do through Battlefields of Business. I feel everybody under the sun wants to run a mentorship course or a mastermind course. And there are some very reputable people out there and I would always recommend mentors, masterminds, etc. However, uh, I'm disappointed, shall we say, whenever I log onto my Facebook and I see that half a dozen of the the friends that have been in property for two years are now running mastermind and mentorship programs. There's a there's a difference between teaching and mentoring. I feel that somebody at the base of their journey does not need mentoring. They need teaching or they need education, not mentoring at that point. Educate yourself, develop a little experience, then take on the mentor. Do not think just because you've had a mentor for two years, you can mentor and i think that's what a lot of people miss being a mentor is having uh, being able to to guide throughout every eventuality shall we say high and low uh, throughout that journey and i feel a lot of people have had success shall we say in property certainly there's a lot seem to do it now in the sa world had a good bit of success in the sa world and want to mentor others no teach others okay let's just teach them a little bit first run it you know I don't know, I'm having a little ramble and you might have to cut this little section out. But um, um, I just, I'm disappointed by everybody wanting to jump on that bandwagon. I, I feel it's a little bit, um, but that's down to the person should, um, you know, be doing their due diligence on the individual. But I also feel somebody getting into property now, educate, 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 educate. Don't mentor yet. Don't get a mentor, okay? Educate, educate, educate. Know everything there is, okay? Or to a level, you'll never know everything. Know everything. Practice then when you are at a point where mentor can accelerate your process, do so. The people who are throwing money at mentors on day one, it's kind of wasted money in my eyes, okay? There's so much self-education that could be done out there. There's so much free education out there. You know, I happily take people around my development. I will happily talk them through HMOs. I I happily give my time for free for things like that because I'm disappointed with the amount of people charging too much for it. I agree high ticket prices, you know, does value your time and value your course. However, I remember being that individual at the bottom who had, didn't have, you know, who felt I'm not going to pay X amount for a mentor, uh, you know, teach yourself first, YouTube, read books, etc. There is so much out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. You know, people say to me, what, what training course should I do? And I always say, 
don't you know get self-educated use the internet use books podcasts audiobooks whatever which will definitely put you in the right direction get some experience go out there dive straight into it because there is so much out there that is free or is at very minimal cost compared to you know thousands of pounds on a course so so i'm definitely with you in in that aspect of of the kind of education piece i mean with your when you, as you were building your portfolio, what was your education like? How did you know this is the right thing to do? Oh, I can fix not weird. I can do that. How did you know? Oh well, I mean, we could go back before that. So when I first started investing, it was on zero education, you know. And I went, you know, it was it very much was zero education. I just saw the the value of bricks and mortar. And the, the first property I bought, um, I thought, um, you know, we bought it put a mortgage on it, rented it out, and actually it worked. As And for me, uneducated, it worked. But I held all my deposit in there, held all my money, gave me a little income each month. And at the time, I was content. The next property, I bought an off-plan property in that classic, in fact, it probably wasn't the next, it was probably about three down the line, but the classic off-plan hype, let's roll back time, kind of 2007 era, you know, buy a flat off-plan at X discount. Well, you know, and that was just an an uneducated mistake. I still hold that property now, but that's a, you know, that it, 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 it washes its face in classic terms, but it's not a good purchase. So I've made a huge amount of mistakes in my time. The education aspect, when I really started to educate myself, and it was probably before any of these courses or anything, there was a, a company running courses at the time, um, a company called Tigrant Education. Now, a very good friend of mine, the chap that I'm now going into battlefields for business with, he jumped, he went on a Tiger and course. And I remember he paid an obscene, I remember thinking that's an obscene sum of money. What can they teach you different to what and mentor you? What, what difference can it make? Because we didn't know. It's the classic, you do not know what you don't know. So I just didn't know. Anyway, this chap went on the course and then I spent two days with him um, just as more of a catch up. And he would give me book after book after book and say, Richard, just read these. Your mind will be opened. And it started with the classic rich dad, poor dad. You know, that was where it all started because Tigrant was Robert Kiyosaki's company. You know, that was that was it. And that weekend with um, with with said chat in question opened my eyes to this. And I thought, wow, I literally know nothing. OK, and it, and it was and it was at that point I started to read. And again, this was before kind of podcasts and before really a lot of education, it was books, you know, we just read. And again, I'm only going back kind of 10 years. Um, it was more the books. So I just started to read all of the all of the, the the classics and then into the business books. So from like your Tony Robbins books and your Warren Buffett books, just business, business in general. That was the point I really took. So yes, I may say I've, I've been in property for, for kind of 15 years. I would say I've only been in educated property. I probably read then for probably a solid 12 months of I genuinely, and it was that realization of, I actually know nothing here. Um, so probably that education, self-education through books 10 years ago is what really kickstarted me. But since then, um, each avenue, so that was by to let I really started with then. When I went into HMOs, it's just that, that research. I'm quite meticulous on the research. So it's about understanding the regulations, understanding the article four, where it goes. And I'll look at, you know, exact streets for article four and I'll see if I can, possibly by the street over or the other side of the street or you know some of the maps are that detail i'll really get into the detail i'll try and meet people i went to meet the hmo officer in hull so it's it is you know when i was learning hmo so it is and again that's when i'll go back to possibly the property networking aspect so say i'm going to learn something new 
in property. I enjoy property networking anyway, so I go to them still anyway to this day. But at that point, I would go and I'd target the people who were, were running the, the kind of HMOs, and I'd just talk to them and pick their brains really about it. And I do that with every one of my strategies, probably every one of the strategies until the SA aspect now. And the SA side now, I've really, I understand the, the, the bare bone. I understand it. I understand what it is. But when it comes, you know, when I hear the very knowledgeable people talk about like the channel managers and they're optimizing adverts, et cetera, I, I don't want to get into that because for me, that is creating a job. Okay. I'm creating a, it's not just, I like to work on a property, refurb it, get it ready hand it to a management agent and at that point i kind of off it a development i'll work on the development i'll be immersed in it for an x period of time and then i'll step back now with sa i do know people now are remotely doing it from phones and things like that and it actually is becoming a far far more hands-off than it possibly was kind of 12 to 18 months ago but i guess it's just an, an area that i i kind of don't like I don't I don't like the the stress of having people call me or uh, so I haven't fully immersed myself in that I've more taken a step back should we say from the investor to um so in the, the classic step-by-step thing I've now kind of become from property investor into um the investor so I'm investing into a hands-off product shall we say so in, with that in mind i haven't fully immersed myself and educated myself but i'm i still you know i'm still part of a mastermind group i'm still part of have a mentor i still self-educate through property but i think it's it's moved my i've moved into kind of looking at the overarching things so more let's look at the policy regarding universal credit and is that going to change the policy regarding uh, hmo licensing and what's next okay so rather than when I first started looking into, okay, what's the best kitchen to put in here? How can I get the best Howden's discount for my new bathroom and kitchen? But again, it's all education, but just different levels. And I think for that person starting out, they need to understand, and this is where the men- education over mental, they need to look at that base level thing, right? I want to, I need to refurb here. Do I use a VAT registered builder or a not VAT registered builder? What's the benefit and downfalls of each? Do I buy my kitchens from Howden's or do I go to LMPG for that discount? You know, understand it, it's such a different level of education. That's education, not mentorship. Mm, okay, wise words. <laughs> so, Rich, we've actually reached the end of the podcast, but we have one final thing left, which is a quick fire round. Now, okay. um, the answers for these are like one sentence. Yes, yeah, so a really, really quick fire. I'm going to put you on the spot, perhaps, some of these. So, what are the biggest three mistakes that you've made in property right uh, buying an off-plan property back in the day um huge uh, not lost but certainly buying an off-plan uh, i've invested in areas without doing a uh, gold mine area kind of due diligence and understanding uh, the level of that uh, due diligence um, and thirdly was probably doing a jv slash investment or taking an investment uh, from a very, very close friend to the point of, let's say, almost a family member that were that close a friend. That was a bit of a mistake. Okay. And then what are your three top tips for people who are new in property? Right. Top tips for new property. Research your area. Know your area inside out. Um, for people who invest in statistics alone online, that's, that is only 
tier one of your research. Get to the area and understand the area you want to invest. Uh, make sure you're passionate about the the um, the field you want to invest in. So I just touched on SA there. I can't get myself passionate about SA, but I, I see the benefit of that. So I don't want to educate. So become passionate about it. So I'm far more passionate about possibly the development arm or development aspect than I possibly ever was about HMOs. I was a lot more passionate about buy-to-lets than I was about HMOs. So be passionate about that. I touched on them all. I haven't been passionate about them all. And actually, if I look back at my time, I'd probably possibly change some of them. So be passionate. Um, was that one or two? I can't remember. That's two, I think. Two of them. Um, and top tips, um, network. Okay, network outside of your your standard field. Okay, so yes, network at property events, understand property strategies, but start networking outside of that network. And, uh, you know, people say go to golf clubs and things like that. And I don't buy into that. That's easy to say, but less, uh, but far, far harder in reality where people are like, oh, go to flying clubs, network there. You can't do it unless you are kind of, you do that, you play golf or you do, you are a pilot, etc. But network out your comfort zone. Go to local business lunches. Okay, go to your property network, but network, okay. Amazing. And then lastly, what are your top three goals for the future? They can be personal, career, business, anything. Um, okay, top three, I'd say grow Battlefields business. I really want to, to do that and that uh, in turn will grow the charity, which is Homes Fit for Heroes. So they're, they're two both passions of mine and that's something within the next 12 months uh, I'd like to to grow both of those. Um, that's kind of the business business goal uh, coupled with my kind of retirement and in inverted commas from the Royal Air Force. Uh, personal goal, um, I would, I've always wanted to ride a motorbike from London to South Africa, maybe in the next 10 years or so. Uh, I've got a, got a, uh, you know, young children. So once they're a little bit older, possibly that's a, a goal of mine to do as well. Um, and really, I'd like to take my business to a self-sustaining point and actually create a legacy. Okay. I'm not, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for to create a legacy for them to possibly work in as well. I think the property aspect um, is fantastic. Love property, always have. But for me now, I would like to grow uh, my separate business, which kind of will segue into business because it's using a lot of of my experience. It's using a lot of my contact, and it's also teaching others to possibly go into the property world. But the crux of it is to teach uh, people, ex-armed forces, people leaving the forces about business, hence its name. Amazing. Richard, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do it? Uh, best way I want to say at the moment is uh, please touch base with me. You know, my my um, LinkedIn, Facebook or um, Instagram is all um, either Rich Little or Richard Little. Uh, Battlefields to Business, we've got a, a social media lady working on all of our new social media and websites for Battlefields to Business. Uh, very soon they'll do that. But please touch base with me on um, on either Facebook or on Instagram. I'm very active on the, the on them all. And what I will say is to anybody who's listening, you know, if somebody wants to come um, and see me, have a little look around my areas, have a little look around any developments for, that we are doing. I'm more than happy to host you for the day. Again, it's all about networking. Come and meet me. Come and meet my my, my personal power teams. I'm not selling you anything. I'm not trying to, to show you anything, but I'm more than happy to give you that time. Amazing. On, um, 
And on the flip side, anybody who wants to talk about either flying or uh, skydiving, both of which uh, I teach in, again, drop me a message. I'm more than happy to encourage you into either of those fields. <laughs> Man of many talents. Richard, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Tej, thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.